as you guys find a seat, um, let me remind you, uh, if you need a Bible, um, we've given away a lot of Bibles over the past uh, couple of weeks, and so um, we actually had to put in a new order. And so there are new Bibles um, that are uh, in the back on my left at the information table. If you need one of those, you can throw a hand in the air, and we'll make sure to, uh, to get you one. Rain's back there, and he can bring you one um, if you'd like to you know, pick up your own Bible, I don't know, do your own work, then hey, feel free. There they are. So um, you guys can, can grab one of those. Um, can we just say, like, as we begin, like, China, wow. Like, I mean, you know what I mean? Like, um, impressive. Uh, Audrey said that, uh, that China needs an award. So, which you will receive, China, at the resurrection of the righteous. We don't, we don't have anything for you this morning, but um, you you will be repaid. Um, so, uh, hey, open up to, uh, to Genesis chapter 9. That's where we're going to be this morning. We're going to begin our time in Genesis 9, um, and as you uh, might have gathered by the lengthy reading, uh, we're going through chapter 11. Um, when we sat down and uh, planned out this series through Genesis, uh, you guys know, those of you who know me know this, right, that um, like my wheelhouse tends to be like like maybe five or six verses at a time, okay? And so to bite off these large chunks of narrative like we have done um, has required um, some, some adaption, right, for me, like in terms of approaching a text each week. Uh, but when we, when we broke this up and we saw, uh, okay, 9, 10, and 11 at one time, 11 chapters in the first five weeks, I believe, uh, I was like, this is going to be a miracle, like if this actually works, right? Um, and about halfway through this week, I was like, we're not going to get to chapter 11. We're just going to have to do 9 and 10. But we are. We're going to 11. And so um, 11 chapters in five weeks. What a joy it has been. Hopefully this has assisted. Um, and for those of you who have been here with us, uh, kind of maintaining this, like, this narrative, uh, the, the continuity within the text and helping us see some of the natural breaks. This is a way that we like to read the Bible. A lot of times our chapter breaks and even our verse breaks can, um, can help us to read the Bible, but there are times in which they hinder us from reading the Bible as well because we tend to um, kind of read them as, okay, here is the end of an idea, and as we progress into another chapter, here's the beginning of a new idea, when in actuality, I think a lot of times we see that there is overflow of idea and thought, right, in between chapters. And so uh, one thing that we try to do is maintain the, uh, the thought of the author Moses as he pins this and to draw out, um, draw out the conclusions that he desired his people to arrive at and then to apply um, the text appropriately in our lives. And so um, here we go. Let me um, kind of just for a point of help review some things that we said last week. Last week um, we were in chapters 6, 7, and 8. So we did three chapters last week, three chapters this week. And as we were in chapter 6, 7, and 8, which is the flood narrative, um, which, wow, like, what a time to do the flood narrative as we're also dealing with, like, a hurricane, like, battering the East Coast. Like, that's incredible. In fact, why don't we just take just a moment and let's just pray um, for those who have been impacted by the hurricane over the past couple of days. And I think it's still continuing to kind of spin down there, right? It's, it's been downgraded, um, which uh, I'm no meteorologist, right, obviously. But um, from what I understand, that's like good and also somewhat challenging because now it's just hanging out, dumping tons of rain. So why don't we pray for the people on the coast 
um, and then we'll step back into um, Genesis chapter uh, chapter 9. Father, uh, we pray for those who are um, in the path and, and cleaning up the after effects of uh, the hurricane that's been just pounding the eastern coast of the United States. We pray that you would um, be with um, those who are um, are cleaning up, uh, that you would uh, be with the church as they seek to rally around, love, support, and care for those who have been most affected. Um, we love you and, and we trust uh, that you uh, indeed, as you affirm in your word, work all things together for good. And so we pray that you would use this um, to draw those um, in this particular area and those outside of the area that are impacted because they have family who lives there unto yourself, that you would comfort um, and that you would save. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, last week, we, we looked at this idea that God judges the wicked, uh, but he rescues the righteous. Right? God judges the wicked and he rescues the righteous. We observed the expansion of sin and God's mercy and provision. One point that I thought was just um, just a, a great place for us to land in light of the flood narrative and all that we observed going on there in those three chapters last week was this, that we are um, living now as a rescued people who find rest in Christ. Right? We're living as a, a rescued people, as God's people, rescued from His wrath, um, do sin, right? Like that sin is, is deserving of finding rest in the faithfulness and goodness of God, even if we fail to find relief from tragedy and sadness and difficulty and pain in this world. That was an idea that we, that we touched on last week as we acknowledged Noah and his family's um, participation in the experience of the flood and all that came along with that, that the Lord rescued Right, And he provided rest, even if there was not um, complete relief from that which was taking place around him. In Christ Jesus, we find safety and assurance of friendship with God and citizenship in his kingdom. That was, that was a major point of emphasis last week as we looked at chapters 6, 7, and 8. This week, as we come to chapters 9, 10, and 11, um, a big idea that I want us to, to kind of like focus on and to make some observations around um, would be this. Right? If you take notes, this would be a great thing to write down. Whether you type, whether you're old-fashioned pen and paper, um, write this down. This is kind of what we're going to be focusing on and, and circling around over our time together. In a sin-cursed world, God employs a pilgrim people to play a fundamental role in his plan to redeem the nations. In a sin-cursed world, God employs a pilgrim people Again, one of my, one of my most favorite um, analogies for the Christian life is the pilgrim life, right? God employs a pilgrim people to play a fundamental role in his plan to redeem the nations. We observe that in chapters 9, 10, and 11, and we observe that in our world, right, around us now, today. So where um, have we been large scale? We talked a little bit about where we were last week, but as we approach again this week the book of Genesis, what, are we, um, what would be helpful for us to know as we come into a more in-depth look at these three chapters? Moses, of course, is retelling the story of creation and the events that have led God's people to this point as they prepare to enter into a land that has been set apart for them. Remember, we said this in the beginning, that, that we are not the first recipients of this letter. Right, But then Moses pins this letter initially and originally for God's people having been delivered from oppression and slavery in Egypt, taking some laps in the wilderness as they prepare to go into this covenant land that he has promised. This is the first audience. 
right? And so that's helpful for us to, to, to understand and to see as we come um, again into the book of Genesis this week. We have observed again and again God's holiness through his judgment of sin and wickedness alongside his mercy. Last week, Noah and his family being rescued, kept, and delivered. And again and again, um, this assurance is affirmed that there is rescue to be found in Christ Jesus. We already talked about it in relation to last week's text. There is rest in Christ, even if temporal relief from hardship and fear um, is, is not found. Our citizenship is secure in Christ Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross for our sins. And so let's look to Genesis chapter 9 with this being the backdrop as we come into these, um, into these three chapters. A few quick observations from Genesis 9. Coming out of the flood, right, and, and coming out of the ark. In chapter 7, Noah is identified as righteous, do you guys remember this? For those of, us, those of you who have been here with us, we talked about Noah's being identified in the text in Genesis chapter 7 as righteous. Now, last week we sought clarification on what is meant by this identifying characteristic. What does it mean that Noah was righteous? Well, it certainly does not mean that Noah is without sin. Right? It certainly does not mean that Noah is without need of being justified in the way that you and I are in need of being justified as recipients of Adam's sin. Right, This is not what is being communicated by this characteristic description from Moses of Noah in chapter 7. This is important as we come into chapter 9. This is not the type of righteousness being identified. Instead, Noah is highlighted as one who desires obedience to God. That's what is meant by this, this identifying characteristic of Noah in chapter 7. Amid this wicked and crooked generation, Noah is one who desires to live in obedience to the Lord. And as we observed last week, there is this concession that we must be willing to make. And that is this, that Noah's existence in this particular time, in this particular place, is a gift of mercy, right? Well, wait a second. What do you mean, right? Noah, as we observed last week, is planted amidst this twisted generation as one who would preserve the promise of the coming of Christ Jesus. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Right, the promise of the coming seed of woman who would defeat sin and death at the cost of his own life. God preserves his promise in chapters 6, 7, and 8. God does not surrender his purpose to fill the world with the glory of his name despite the sinful rebellion of his creation. Remember what we said in the very beginning. What is this all about? Going back to creation, right? Here it is, in the beginning, right? Here it is, creation. What is this all about, this call and this command to be fruitful and multiply as humanity is placed in this garden? Well, it's all about, ultimately, God extending his glory throughout all of creation, right? That's what God is doing from the very beginning. Be fruitful and multiply. Extend my glory, right? 
make more reflectors of me to dwell in this place that I have made that might worship me and adore me and enjoy me, magnify me. That's what it's all about. What we find in light of Genesis chapter 3 is that God does not punt this plan, right? God doesn't punt the plan, right? He doesn't call an audible at the line, right? He doesn't etch-a-sketch everything and just abandon his, 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 his promise in Genesis 3, chapter 15, despite the wickedness of the world. Instead, he remains faithful. This is a big idea. We talk about this a lot, okay? Let's just step back and say, we talk of the faithfulness of God a lot. As we approach every biblical text, our desire is to trace the faithfulness of God through this particular text, right? We see it over the course of these 11 chapters. God is faithful to maintain his commitment to his mission, to fill creation with his glory. Are you guys with me so far? This is what we've seen. This is where we are. In Genesis 9 verse 1, God provides Noah with instruction toward this same mission. Right? The mission continues. It has not changed, but it remains the same. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Same mission to accomplish the same purpose provided Adam in the garden. Listen to what is said. Genesis chapter 9 verse 1. And God blessed Noah and his sons and he said to them, This is familiar. And it draws us back into the mission, the plan, the purpose of God. He said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The same instruction, right, is in fact repeated in verse 7. Look there with me. He says, and you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Through the flood, we observe, as we stated last week, a decreation act, right? Everything is just like, it's just wiped out, right? Like this, this mass obliteration and judgment from the Lord. We observe it in the flood narrative. Through Noah, we see God establish the same mission for this new beginning. Only this time there is an an after effect of sin to consider. And as a result, we see that God gives man a new type of dominion over creation. Look at what he says in verse 2. What we're doing is we're pointing back and we're establishing the connection to the original call of God to his people in Genesis 1 and 2, and this new call in light of new consideration in Genesis chapter 9. The call is the same, only the world is very different now than it was then, isn't it? That's what we're establishing. That's what we're pointing back to. The world here looks very different than the world here. What's the primary difference? Well, like here, sin is not present, right? And so there's this call, there's this commission to live on mission, right? And there's this consideration overarching the entire thing that that there is no sin yet in the world. No corruption, no fallenness, no brokenness, no despair. Now, down here, we see this same call, only there are new considerations to be made. We are now observing a world that that is marred by sin, right? Do we get this? There's a difference. 
Same call, but the landscape is altogether different as we intercept the story here. Look with me at verse 2. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you, God says, everything. The world is a dangerous place, right? Like here, we've got um, like just like giraffes, right? And like and elephants and lions and lambs and everything's hanging out together, right? Now we see that we live in a world where like things will kill you, right? Like you will cease to exist. And thus there is this provision provided by the Lord in that, hey, new dominion. Here you're given dominion over creation. Here you're given this new dominion, right? Prepare yourself to take something out if it comes after you, right? The world is different. It's dangerous now. That's what's being highlighted here. God gives man a a new type of dominion over creation. It doesn't stop there, though. The story continues. God makes a much-needed proclamation concerning the value of human life as we continue the story. Remember what we saw in Genesis chapter 4. Chapter 3, what happens? Just the, the plummeting into sin and destruction of creation, right? Like, everything is marked, everything is marred, everything is scarred. We go into chapter 4, and we see Cain take the life of his brother Abel. We follow the lineage of Cain, and we find this guy named Lamech, who just, um, he just revels in exercising authority over um, his family and his, and his wives and, and killing people for even looking at him wrong. It becomes just this, this casual thing. God is drawing creation back into the value that he places upon human life. God makes it clear in Genesis chapter 9 that the premature snuffing out of human life is indeed a serious offense. That it's even a capital crime might be language that we are most familiar with. This is how serious God takes one exercising authority over another that is not given to them by God and taking their lives, right? What is the punishment? Well, God lays that out for us right here. He says, whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. This is how serious God takes both the preservation of life as well as the advancement of his mission. I want us to consider both of those for just a moment. Number one, the preservation of life. And number two, the advancement of his mission. What is his mission? We talked about it in the beginning, right? It's to, it's to fill creation, right? From, from one edge to the other with his glory, right? God takes this, this seriously. Why? Well, because if we think back to, right, the creation account, there is this remembrance that we are brought into, that humanity is created in the image of God, right? And, and as a result, any assault on image bearers of God is an assault on the Lord, right? He connects himself uniquely and intimately with his creation in this way. As a result... 
murder, assault on the image of God, is worthy of grave consequence. This is what it looks like to live in this new fallen and broken world. In addition, God has clearly commissioned his image bearers to serve as instruments for the spread of his glory throughout all creation. To murder then is to what? Well, it's to work in direct opposition with the mission of God, right? And so God says, here's how seriously I take the preservation of human life as humans are created and bear my image. In addition, here's how seriously I take my mission. Given that humanity is employed to advance my glory throughout all of creation, to assault a fellow image bearer on mission is then to wage war against mission. God takes the preservation of life very seriously. Okay? God takes his mission very seriously. These are points that are being established as humanity is receiving new instruction, right, for new living in this new place. Are we together? Now, we can sit here and we can talk about all the practical implications of what this means for us, and maybe we ought to for just a moment, right? How does the church feel about issues pertaining to the right of life? Why is this something that we are so passionate about? That we, that we speak about often, one of these controversies within culture that the church leans into as opposed to avoiding. Well, because God takes this seriously. And it's not a New Testament concept. It's a concept going all the way back to the beginning. Right? Why are we so serious about mission and participation in mission? Why do we talk about mission all the time and, and challenge and encourage and invoke one another to go out and to live on mission? Well, because here's what we're not trying to do. Right? We are not... Here at Christ the King, seeking to build our own tiny little kingdom. Right? What we are trying to do is live in obedience to the word and instruction of God, his desire for his image bearers to advance his glory. We are participating in his mission. And so therefore, man, hey, if I get the opportunity to talk about this, like this, the importance of participation in mission, I'm going to lean into it. Why? Well, because ultimately it's not my mission. Ultimately it's God's mission that he's employing me and you to be a part of. Right. And so then to say like, no, I'm kind of cool. Just like doing me. Right. Like, no, like that's not what God desires from his people. Like, it's not even an option. Right. Do we get that? Like, it's just really, it's not like, is that harsh? Is that cold? Is that, you guys feel okay? It's just not an option. Like God takes these things super seriously. And that's what we observe by way of this instruction for new creation. We've got to continue on. We've got to, we've got to keep going. God follows this with his own commitment, a promise that is marked by a sign. And so he calls for commitment from his creation. And then he says, but hey, here's the deal. You're not alone in this, right? Like, you're, you're, you're not alone. Like, I am, I am with you, right? And I am committed. And there's evidence of that beginning in verse 8. Look there with me. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you. This is a unique point. That we find ourselves in in the book of Genesis. There are like just a few examples in all of redemptive literature, right? That we are able to find God's covenant with all of creation. Like man and, and beast. Here we are observing that. 
the birds of, of uh, the birds and the livestock and every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out uh, of the ark. It is for every beast of the earth I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. This is his commitment. Now he, he uh, points towards this sign right, that, that affirms this. God said, verse 12, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. You and I, like we continue to observe this. Like this is, this is timeless, right? this is ageless, it just continues. We continue to observe like, like rainbows right, in the sky. And, and it reminds us of something very specific that we're going to talk about in just a moment. Verse 13, I have set my bow in the cloud. And it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Think about all of the parties that are participating, right? Willingly or or unwillingly with this covenant from the Lord here in Genesis chapter 9. We're going to talk about that in in just a moment. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. As we established first last week in Genesis chapter 8, verse 22, but really we go back to it every week. The world is broken and God is holy, right? Like the world is is broken. You and I are a part of this and God is holy. Here God promises a broken world protection from his holy wrath up until a certain, up until a certain point. To this day, God gifts the world with a visible sign, right? with, a, with a tangible reminder of his grace. Now let's consider the recipients of God's grace as all of the earth is encapsulated in this covenant promise. Right? You have recipients of his common grace, grace extended from the Lord to every individual in the form of provision and restraint. Right? And so for the, the skeptic, right? For the non-believer, for those that exist, right? And dwell in a hostility, a direct hostility directed towards God. We see God's faithful promise of preservation. Right? To, to be merciful and gracious. We observe His common grace that we are all recipients of. You may be here this morning and you're like, Wait, what? <laughs> right? Like, I, I'm a recipient of God's grace. I don't even acknowledge the existence of God. How in the world then can I be a recipient of his grace? That is, that is who God is. Right? Like he, he sets his, his, his common grace upon creation. Right? And he does so in order to um, continue to affirm his great character. In light of the promise that is extended in Genesis chapter 9. We see his common grace and we see his specific grace, right? For those who, who find, similarly to Noah, rescue, not just in the temporal, but the eternal, in the truer and better ark, Christ Jesus, right? And so the, um, the judgment of the Lord is suppressed 
up until a certain point, right? Recipients of common grace dwelling right here in this world that he has created. Recipients of his good gifts, right? That he extends. Only we know that there is a point of judgment, right? That that, that grace comes in the form of, of common grace up until a certain point before there is a reckoning for evil and wickedness. Our natural human condition as those who have inherited the sin of Adam. On the other hand, right, there is this salvific, specific grace from the Lord, right, in which you and I, similarly to Noah, find refuge in Christ Jesus from the wrath. We are shut in, right, protected under the blood of our King, while judgment and, and wrath just pours down on the outside. That is what it looks like for the Christian. We find rescue from the wrath of God as we are called into fellowship with him by way of the sacrifice of Jesus. God promises grace, which is going to prove super beneficial, okay? For Noah, like immediately, But before we go there, I want us to say from chapter 9 a few things that we have observed up until this point. Number one, God's mission is quite clear based on our observation from Genesis thus far. To fill the world with his glory. He does this now through the preservation of creation and the mission of his people to share his character and his kindness from a New Testament perspective most apparent through Jesus. Let me say that another way. Even as we observe God's covenant promise in the sky, it is a display of his kindness. And it is the kindness of the Lord that leads us into repentance. And so there is this emphasis again on the kindness of the Lord as we conclude our time in chapter 9. The kindness of the Lord and how, from a New Testament perspective, we observe this primarily through the preservation of people leading us to the coming of Christ Jesus, who rescues us, right? This is where we, this is where we are. We begin chapter 9 by observing God's good covenant before transitioning into maybe what we could best describe as, um, as like an exposition of humanity's continued dysfunction and sin seriousness. Humanity's continued dysfunction and sin's seriousness. Look with me at verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah. And from these, these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began uh, to be a man of the soil and planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and laid uncovered in his tent. It's this really strange scene, right? Verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, we are observing the beginning of this new world, right? 
The beginning of a, of a new world occupied by the family of righteous Noah displaying through the actions of the conclusion of chapter 9 sin's presence on the ark with all of the animals and the eight survivors entrusted to repopulate the earth. Wait a second. I didn't see sin enter into the ark. Now that we're in this new creation and all the wickedness outside has been destroyed, why do we have this scene that we do at the conclusion of chapter 9? Well, because humanity was preserved and there is this natural condition now, right, in terms of, of, of human relationship and sin. Right, that sin is a part of who we are. And thus, all of the wickedness outside can be destroyed, only sin continues. It persists. It was on the ark in the form of the eight survivors. Noah is drunk and he's naked in his tent. <laughs> right? Where his son Ham, the father of the Canaanites, ultimately finds him sharing his discovery with his brother Shem and Japheth. We see shortcomings here in these two in these few verses. We see shortcomings and we see sin, we see family dysfunction, all surviving the flood and further solidifying our understanding of the sinful human condition and our need for mercy. Hang with me here. Through the actions of Noah and the response of Ham, there is yet again separation articulated. Right? There, there is this separation that takes place. We talked about in the beginning how there, is just the, there are these points going back to creation in which there is distinction, light from darkness and water from the heavens. There's separation. That theme continues here as there is a separation within this now obviously, quite obviously, dysfunctional family. We see that there is no sin that is too small. Right? There's no sin that is too small, and there is always consequence. In this case, the cursing of Canaan, the son of Ham. Now, this is a, a really helpful historical marker. Okay, so remember in the beginning we talked about how uh, Moses is writing to the people of God preparing to enter into the promised land, right? Do you guys remember this? Are you with me? Here we are seeing this curse laid out from the Lord as a result of Ham's sin on a people who consequently enough find themselves as the occupiers of the land that God's people are preparing to take as theirs, as Moses records the book of Genesis. At the land that God's people are preparing to enter into uh, finds um, itself being occupied by who? The Canaanites. So let's place ourselves in the position of the original audience for just a moment. And you're preparing to enter into this land that the Lord has promised by way of his covenant with his people. And he said, kick them all out. Like, get them all out. Like, they're all leaving. And you go, well, like, I don't know. Like, they were there first. And like, is this really the right thing to do, right? After 40 years in the wilderness, I'm not entirely sold that that was the mentality of the people. But one thing that we can say is that um, there is this... Uh, affirmation, right, of the Lord's call upon the action of the people for the Canaanites by way of this curse review in chapter 9, right? Go in and, and remove them, right? This is a, a cursed people as a result of the sin observable in chapter 9. 
We see the cursing of Canaan, we see the blessing of Shem, and we see the enlargement of Japheth. Sin results in judgment. Here it is. Write this down. This is helpful. Sin results in judgment. Sin results in judgment intended to satisfy the perfect justice of God. Now, because this is true, there is no hierarchy of sin. There is no serious sin and then like less serious sin. We might read this story and we go, wow, Noah gets drunk and his son wanders in and the consequences are like a curse. That seems a bit much, doesn't it? Only we find that it is not the individual or the action that determines the seriousness of sin, but it is instead God's holy character. Did you catch that? That's a really important and powerful distinction. It's not, right, an individual or the sin that determines the seriousness, but it's God's holy character. Why? Well, because God is ultimately the object of offense for our sin. Right? Sin is offensive to the Lord. And there, because he is so holy, there is no, okay, this sin, like, and then this sin, and then this sin. So as long as I stay in the realm of these, like, second, third tier sins, I should be okay. No. Right? Like, that's the way we function. Like, that's the way we categorize things, isn't it? Right? Okay, like, don't murder anybody. Right? Like, don't, obviously, that's a big deal. Or don't, like, don't commit adultery. Like, don't do, don't do these things, like these sins, like stealing from like the poor or like the church, right? For whatever reason, these are elevated, right? You steal from the poor? Like, oh, wait, but Robin Hood stealing from the rich? Okay, that's cool. No, like there's just this, there's this, there's this, this new distinction that needs to be made. And it's made in light of, of our understanding of the object of our sin, God. Right? That it is offensive to a holy God, and therefore there is no hierarchy. Pride and hate, a failure to truly love God, and a rejection of God's call to love one's neighbor, murder, each worthy of divine judgment. Now, in the case of Noah and his family, Canaan is set aside as the object of judgment. Moses reminds his people of this fact. Encouraging, then, obedience to God's word. In Christ Jesus, we find a willing and able servant who steps into the place of sinners, satisfying God's judgment on sin, becoming a curse. Christ Jesus, becoming a curse on the cross so that we uh, might look to and trust in his sacrifice and in turn be spared. Be spared punishment and receive adoption as sons and daughters of God. We observe here God's God's good covenant and we observe an exposition of humanity's continued dysfunction and sin's seriousness. Now we're going to skip ahead to chapter 11. Lightning round. Everyone, here we go. Everyone okay so far? Okay. We're skipping ahead to chapter 11. Why are we skipping chapter 10? Let me explain quickly. 
Okay, up until this point in Genesis, we have been reading um, chronologically, right, events in order. Like this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then, and then this happened. And that's the way it has been laid out. As we come into chapter 10 and 11, we find information that would serve to answer some supernatural questions that God's people, the original audience, might have as they hear this story being told. Think about some natural questions that like all of God's people gathered together in the wilderness preparing to march into this land might have in light of where we leave off here in chapter 9. Here's a few natural questions. Number one, who in the world are all these people? (laughs) Right? Like, like how did we get here? Who are all these people? And um, like, why are they all speaking different languages? Right? The, the assumption is, of course, that given that there were eight people on the planet following the flood, Noah and his family and their wives, um, the assumption is that they would all be speaking the same language. Only now we see that the world is uh, broken up into various segments, people groups that speak differently. <laughs> And so Moses begins answering this question. He actually starts answering it in chapter 10, verse 20. But what we find in chapter 10 is uh, not so much a genealogy, but a record of people and peoples. You say, wait a second, that sounds like the same thing. If you read through chapter 10, here's a super interesting fact. And you might have caught it as China was reading, because she did such a great job of reading. Sometimes people read all the names and places and because we just kind of like stumble through them because they're hard and I didn't read that for a reason and so I'm not bashing on anybody who like struggles with that. We, we go, oh wow, I just kind of got lost in that and I wasn't really able to follow the story but China did a great job at reading and one thing that you might have noticed is you see individual peoples mentioned and at the same time you see large groups of people mentioned and so it almost reads like this. Um, yeah, so all these people like are kind of coming about and you had like um, like the Johnsons, right? And then you had like um, the Russians, right? Like you had this like family of people and then you had this massive group of people. That's the way that chapter 10 really reads. It's not so much a genealogy in the same way that Ben a couple of weeks ago took us through a genealogy. It's not less than a genealogy, but it is a little bit more than that. So what I want us to do, what I want us to do is I want us to use what time we have remaining looking to chapter 11 and understanding its place in the story. And in doing so, we're really setting the stage for our transition into next week, into the days of Abram or Father Abraham, right? This is a familiar story that many of you guys are are connecting with. This is the next major stop for you and I in Genesis. But there's this beautiful transition that takes place as Moses records the events of chapter 11 and the peoples in chapter 10 preparing his original audience and you and I to go into the story of Abraham in chapter 12. So let's look at chapter 11 for just a few minutes as we close out our time together. Chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Right, naturally, of course. Eight people, right? Multiplication and same language. And as the people migrated from the east, they found a a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, now this is familiar language, okay? Okay. So perhaps try to connect some dots as we read through. 
Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. Verse 11. And they had bricks for stone and bitumen and mortar. Then they said, here it is again, repetition. Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Well, we see the words of those gathered at Babel actually mirroring those spoken by God within himself in creation. Right? These are familiar words. God says within himself, this perfect Trinitarian relationship, let us make man what? In our image. Right? And in our likeness. Let us do this. God's language there within himself in the beginning. Now we step into Genesis chapter 11 and we see words that seem to mirror those words of God in creation. God says, let us make man in our image. In Genesis 11, the response is from humanity, let us elevate ourselves into the position of God. Let us conform God into our image. In fact, let's go one step further and let us make ourselves gods. At which point, God intervenes. And interestingly enough, he does so in like this really gracious manner. Look with me at verse 5. Again, there's some familiar language here. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower with the children of which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have one language. And this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing uh, that they uh, that they purpose to do will not be impossible for them. Come, let us go down again. Repetition. And they confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. In Genesis 11, God enters into creation. Now, it's been some time since we've seen this taking place, haven't we? God enters into um, creation where he observes the perversion of work that is taking place as men conspire to make much of themselves. And he intervenes. Right? He, he brings confusion to their language before, verse 8, dispersing them from there over the face of all the earth. Verse 9, therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Now I want us to think about this for just a moment. What did we say is the mission of God in the beginning? Well, it's to spread his glory over the face of the whole earth, right? Now, wait a second. We come into Genesis chapter 11 and we see that there are people dispersed over the whole earth, only it's a result and a consequence of sin, right? And we might go, all right, well, how does this all then fit in with the mission and the plan and the purpose of of God? We begin with God's covenant, followed by a series of judgments and a detailed explanation of human expansion, an explanation, 
and a warning. An explanation as to how the world is now what it is. And a warning that humanity shall never be successful in working their way to God by the labors of their own hands. A warning that to try and do this would be um, undesirable. Right? That's not a a good idea, that God will not allow his creation to occupy his throne. But remember, this story that is being told, God would continue to observe the human need. And at just the right time, he would send his son entering not only into the human environment, which seems to be what we observe there in verse um, 6 and 7, but to enter in instead the human condition. There's a distinction And we're about to identify that and begin closing our time. God's compassion and kindness continues, beginning in Genesis 9 with his covenant with Noah and his sign, a reminder of his kindness in the rainbow. It continues in Genesis chapter 11. Humanity is dispersed, and as a result, there's sin, and and consequently, the, the nations are formed. Now, let's begin to bring all this Together In Christ Jesus, God begins drawing these same nations back together again. In Genesis 11, we see this dispersion as a result of humanity's sin. Only God maintains commitment to his plan and to his mission. He begins drawing them back together again, not under a tower of human achievement, but instead under the cross. In which humanity would stand, not looking up at themselves, but instead looking up at their king who bears their shame and their guilt. In Genesis chapter 11, peoples are dispersed. Evidence of God's power to suppress sin. If we leave these guys with the same language, it is just going to get exponentially worse. And therefore, in order to suppress sin, right, I'm going to confuse their language, and I'm going to scatter the people. In Acts chapter 2, we're flipping over to the New Testament here. We're making a connection. How does all of this fit with God's plan? In Acts 2, following the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, the nations gather in Jerusalem for Pentecost, and God again comes. As the Spirit, he enters into Jesus' people, among whom is Peter, who would be used by God to display the power of the gospel to transcend the confusion of Genesis chapter 11, bringing not suppression, but instead salvation to the nations. Equipping and empowering the church for this next dispersion to engage the whole world with the news of Jesus, victorious over death, and as a result, bringing us back into fellowship before our King. Do you see that? Do you see what God does? In Genesis 11, there is this dispersion, consequence for men's sin, and an act of suppression from the Lord. In Acts chapter 2, we see these nations that had been scattered across creation, brought back together in this place to hear from Peter by the power of the Spirit, this proclamation of the resurrecting power of Christ Jesus, victorious over hell and death and sin. We see this um, community that is brought together despite their differences. In Genesis chapter 11, we see this community that is dispersed. In Acts chapter 2, they're brought back together again. 
Part of this stronger, more coherent, more cohesive bond that is Christ Jesus brought together as the church that would once again, get this, be sent out to advance the mission of God to extend His glory throughout all of creation. You and I are a part of this. Like, we're a part of this story. God working and displaying His power, extending His glory. Remember what we said in the beginning. In a sin-cursed world, God employs a pilgrim people to play a fundamental role in His plan to redeem the nations. Now, each week, as we gather together, we remember Christ's death and resurrection from the dead for our forgiveness. Periodically, we witness and practice baptism, individuals identifying themselves publicly with Christ. But weekly, with the bread and the cup, we observe and remember Christ's sacrifice in our place. These are ordinances, or these are, are, are sacraments, you might, you might call them, described by one theologian, as an external sign, this is really important. You're going to like nerd out with me for just a minute. But this is neat as we come into our time at the table. An external sign by which the Lord seals our consciences, his, uh, consciences, his promises of goodwill towards us in order to sustain the weakness of our faith. And we in turn testify. Towards him, both before him and before angels, as well as men. Using, this is it, using elements that we can taste, see, and touch. The ordinances help us as embodied creatures to understand spiritual realities. In turn, when we practice the ordinances, we testify to our faith in God's promises before a watching world. Here's the deal, church. We're closing it out right here. As we come to the table, we are reminded of the plan of God and his provision for his people, right? To to accomplish what humanity in Genesis chapter 11 could not. As we come to the table today, let us corporately and individually search our hearts diligently for those areas in which we are relying on our own righteousness and let us repent. Individually, And corporately, let us repent. Let us gaze with amazement upon our crucified and resurrected King, expressing inwardly and outwardly our need and our gratitude by way of worship at the faithfulness of our great God. Genesis 9, 10, and 11. The faithfulness of God to preserve His plan, His purpose, and His mission throughout all time. Thank you.